Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Things have really changed in the past few years. I think there was something sort of simmering under the surface, and a lot of women in this industry felt that they just weren't getting the recognition that they deserved or others deserved. That was Carrie Diamond, co-creator and editorial director of the magazine Cherry Bomb, devoted to women in the food industry. One of the women featured in Cherry Bomb is Liz Pruitt, author of Tartine All Day. She's here on Milk Street to talk about gluten-free baking, one of her favorite desserts called apple beehive, and why she roasts chicken to just 150 degrees. Uh, Liz, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Good. So you founded Tartine uh, with your husband, Chad, in 2002. 
your new book is Tartine All Day, Modern Recipes for the Home Cook. Talk to me about, I mean, in France, obviously, you know, you go to the bakery, you can pick up your bread, you can pick up desserts, patisserie, whatever. And I don't think too many people at home make baguette or croissant or puff pastry. Is that something that should be done by a professional, like leave it to the professionals? <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, I, I've, I've made baguette and croissant, and I'm, I, I just think it's insane. I mean, you, you need to really know what you're doing, and you need to do it a lot to get good at it. So is that just something that, I mean, people can do anything they'd like, but isn't that something that should be left <laughs> to professionals, really? Well, yeah, people can do anything they like. <laughs> But if I completely agree with you that if you want to make a really good baguette or any laminated dough like the croissants, I, I kind of do follow that 10,000 hour rule right. that it really benefits you to do something over and over and over and over again. But people are fascinated by the process. And anybody who has even just like a little urge to make their bread at home or a croissant, it's kind of fun. One of the recipes you have, which is particularly interesting and is gluten-free, is apple beehive. Oh, um, yes. What is that recipe? It's really, it's simple, but it's great. It came from an idea that I'd read a long time ago that Pierre Hermé does, the great, great French pastry chef. And it was simply these layers of very thinly sliced peeled apples, cooked for a long time at a low heat. And I loved that idea of sort of tart to tin, where the apples are keeping their shape, but they're just so beautifully soft. And then how to make that like interesting without a crust, without making it a pie, without turning it into something else, just the apple. So it's just a pile of thinly sliced apples in circles in a beehive That's shape. it. It's a pile of apples. <laughs> beehive sounds better. <laughs> With a little bit of um, sugar in between the layers. And, of course, it wouldn't be interesting to me or a tartine bakery product if it didn't have, like, a little bit of uh, color uh, or even, like, a lot of little burnt edges for flavor and interest. And then I glazed the whole thing with some quince jelly. You mentioned burnt edges. You know, as you know, you go to Paris to a bakery, you see burning, you know, Mm -hmm. the apple tarts, little pastries. Things are very dark, Mm -hmm. darkly baked. I vastly prefer the former to the latter. Is there some reason in America we we don't bake our pastries as the, the way they do in Paris, which means longer and darker? Americans seem to really be hesitant to cook or bake with very high heat. You know, you want to caramelize, just like with the steak, you're going to caramelize the outside of the steak. There's natural sugars that caramelize there. And uh, that's where you get flavor. Same with baked goods. And I think it's absolutely beautiful to look at, but it also just like adds a little bit of texture and flavor. Apple pie, let's have a fight. You're (laughs) in the camp of let me pre-cook some of the apples down (laughs) to caramelize them. And then I'll put them in the crust and finish it. And I'm like, please don't do that because you lose the fresh acid bite of the apples when you do that. So you can defend your Ah, uh, my your position. Approach. I love a good fight. Okay. Yeah. First of all, this is what I will say about this. And I'm not backpedaling here at all. But 
we have a lot of different <laughs> apples than you do on the East Coast. One of the, well, there are several different ones that you have that we don't. But, okay, that aside, I get what you're talking about with that bright acid flavor, but that's not what I'm looking for in a pie. So there. Fair enough. <laughs> and many traditional apple pies use flour as a thickener. And of course I, right. I don't. And I, You don't need a thickener. You don't right. need a thickener. And I really get annoyed. I get so annoyed when I see an apple pie that you can just like tell before you even taste it, there's just flour in there. There's nothing worse than that sort of gummy texture of flour that hasn't been properly cooked out, the starch cooked out. Um, it, the whole thing is just makes me mad. Well, Liz, all I can say is if that's your definition of backing down, <laughs> I don't think you backed down at all. Uh, okay, fair enough. I, I just have one last question. Is there any other personal moment in your life that, that sort of informed a lot of what you think about food now? Chad and I were working in a bakery in the Savoie, in the Haute Savoie. And we were invited to, one of the bakers uh, lived on an alpage, and they made us the simplest meal of boiled potatoes and reblochon. This type of cheese is put in front of a fireplace and allowed to melt and become slightly bubbly on the edges, and you scrape it onto bread or potatoes, cooked leeks, and it's just saucy and soft and delicious and very fragrant. And it's a tradition there. And that that's one of those elemental things that I thought, here I am, like, I've traveled so far. France is known for these really often elaborate meals and lengthy preparation. And this is just the simplest, simplest thing I could be eating. And I, I couldn't have been happier being at this person's house mm. with this hospitality and this than just potatoes and cheese. That's that quote, richness of elemental foods prepared with intention, mm. right? That's right. Liz, really pleasure. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much, Chris. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you're just tuning in, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Now let's take some of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of, uh, of phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls. Hello, we're so glad you're joining us on Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Diane uh, from Groton, Massachusetts. Ah, Groton. I know Groton. Yes. Oh, do you? Yes. <laughs> Um, so my question has to do with a cast iron skillet. I attempted to season it by getting a video off the internet. I rubbed it all over with a vegetable oil. And you put it in an oven. I put it in a 350 oh, no. degree oven for an hour, upside down. Bad. And then I let it cool in the oven. And when I took it out, it was sticky yes, all over. It always is. <laughs> so I did it again. I didn't re-oil it, but I put it back in the oven, again, 350 for an hour. I took it out. It's less sticky, but it's still sticky, and it doesn't have the sheen, I right. think, that it's supposed to have to be nonstick. So where do I go from here? This is my favorite topic. I'll try to make I'm it gonna, short. I'm gonna total, I know you're the Sarah uh, cast iron king. First yeah. of all, I don't know why manufacturers or people on YouTube suggest that, because inevitably you end up with a sticky surface. So here's how to fix it. I would put it on the stovetop on medium-high heat or medium heat for a few minutes till it gets really hot. Put some oil in it, neutral oil, at least a tablespoon. 
put the oil in it before you heat it. When it really starts to smoke, get an oven mitt, hold the pan, and then take a bunch of paper towels and rub the oil into the pan. And then as it cools down for the next couple minutes, keep rubbing it once in a while, just if you see any beading oil. Let it cool and do that again a couple times. And that should give you a pretty good surface and it won't be sticky. If for any reason it is sticky, uh, you can solve it by putting like a quarter cup oil in the pan with a bunch of kosher salt, heating it up and scrubbing the pan down with paper towels. The salt and the oil should clean off that surface and get rid of the stickiness. But always do it on top of the stove. And every time you cook with it, make sure that you, before you start cooking, heat it up with some oil. When it starts to smoke, rub it into the pan, let it cool down for a couple minutes, and then go ahead and cook. And so if you season it just before you cook, like seasoning a wok before you cook with a wok, you'll have a really nonstick surface. I have carbon steel pans I do that with, and they are as slick as a nonstick skillet. Do you have any idea why that happened in the oven? Yeah, because what's happening is the oil's beating up on the surface, and it's not really getting into the cast iron. As you heat it up, and then you push that oil in with the paper towels, it really gets into the pan, and it gets absorbed. But you have a thick layer of oil that's just sitting on the top, and it's sticky. And it doesn't get hot enough either. You want to get that pan like 450, 500. Smoking. If she's done this twice and it's still gummy before she even starts doing what you suggested, should she try to get that gumminess off before she does it? No, I would try seasoning it uh, Just like you described. And that should solve the problem. If not, you can use the oil and salt and scrub Mm. it out, then season it a couple times. But it should be, if you take care of it, it should be really nonstick. And by the way, at Thanksgiving, I did have an extended family member clean my cast iron with soap (gasps) and a scrubber. So did they, you kick them out? I did. I did kick them yeah. out. I yeah, said, just I, put them out in the snow. I, said to heck with you. I, into the bank. So yeah. make sure you don't let anybody else clean it. Never use soap. Give it a try. All right. Okay. Thanks, Thank Diane. You so much. Appreciate Thanks. it. Take care. Yep. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name's Steve Klein. I'm calling from Pennsylvania. How can we help you? Typically, when I make pancakes, regular pancakes, white flour pancakes, I split my milk, what calls for a cup of milk, I mix it with yogurt, I do half milk, half yogurt. Uh-huh. I had some gluten-free guests out on the farm recently, so I made buttermilk pancakes, and I hadn't done them, and I had the recipe called for buttermilk. And I did the whole, you know, milk plus the lemon juice, and let it sit for a while to curdle a bit. I made the pancakes that way. And they were sort of flat and loose. Yeah. You know, I'm used to more meaty pancakes as my yogurt milk mix. And I wondered, can I replace buttermilk with a yogurt milk mix like that? Sure. Just take about, I don't know, three-quarter cup yogurt and a quarter cup water milk and and whisk it just to get the right texture. I have tried the same thing you tried, which was like a tablespoon of lemon juice or vinegar with a cup of milk. And I never had any luck with that. No, all it does is curdle it. It just doesn't work. But, But you know, there is dried buttermilk powder, which keeps very nicely. Bob's Red Mill even makes one. But what would you, for taste, would you prefer the powder reconstituted or the yogurt milk mix? I bet the yogurt milk I mix is better. I bet you that would be better, too. Yeah. Okay. Right. And what was the leavening? Just baking soda? In my regular mix, it's a cup of flour, two teaspoons of baking powder, mm. quarter teaspoon of salt, and a cup of milk, and a little bit of oil. It's a settlement cookbook recipe. So what flour did you substitute since you can't use wheat flour? Uh, I used the recipe for the other. I used the buttermilk pancake recipe. And I used, I think, two-thirds a cup of buttermilk and oat flour. Well, I might... I might comment that I have made gluten-free pancakes. I've been down this road. Don't ask why. You're never going to get 
The same texture. Yeah, you're not going to get the same texture because you don't have the gluten, and the gluten is what's going to give you the thickness and the texture. I've made it with brown rice flour, white rice flour, potato starch, this and the other thing. So, so your problem is it, it, is not really it's, it's the gluten. buttermilk or yeah. the lack thereof. Right. It's the flour, which it, is... You yeah. just have to give up. You can make pretty good gluten-free pancakes, but they're, they're never going to be as good as the regular ones. Yeah, they weren't bad. But no, they they're not bad. Flat. Yeah, yeah, they're not as thick because they don't have the gluten, which gives you the texture. The gluten also probably traps the gas it that's does. given off by the leavener. So you and get lift. You're uh, not going to get the same trapped gas and with these other flours because they don't have so the same the, structure. So the dream of lofty gluten-free pancakes is a pipe dream. Well, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks very much. You're welcome. Okay, thanks, thanks. Stephen. Take care. Bye. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question in search of an answer, give us a ring anytime, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. After this break, I talk to Carrie Diamond. She's co-creator and editorial director of Cherry Bomb, a print magazine devoted to women in food. We talk about Martha Stewart, Barbara Lynch, and Alice Waters. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but 
pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you've never heard of Cherry Bomb magazine, you need to pick up a copy today. It's fresh, it's gorgeous, and it brings back the thrill of ink on paper. Kerry Diamond is the magazine's editorial director and also host of the podcast Radio Cherry Bomb. Kerry Diamond, welcome to Milk Street. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. So another magazine publisher, two in the same room. Two crazy people. You did this beautiful magazine, the intersection of food and fashion and art why did you think anyone needed another magazine, especially one that's so beautifully done, but, but you know, odd in its own way? <laughs> I'll take that. That was a compliment, <laughs> I'm take, I'm taking it as a compliment. That, it's such a good question. I mean, we have to go back. Uh, the magazine is called Cherry Bomb and it's all those things that Chris said, but more importantly, it celebrates women in and around the food space. And I think that is why we felt the world needed another magazine. We wanted to celebrate all the different women in the food world. It's interesting. The food world in the last 20 years is full of women. Barbara Lynch, Alice Waters, Padma, April Bloomfield, Lydia, Julia, of course, Rachel Ray, Gabrielle Hamilton, Nancy Silverton, Nigella Lawson. So is this to celebrate women in the food world just because that's your interest, or is it to promote the notion of women in the food world? It's definitely both. I mean, when we started the magazine, uh, we first launched in 2013. It, it was a very bro-y moment in the food world, and the chefs who were being celebrated really were mostly the guys. And my boyfriend at the time had asked if I would open a restaurant with him, and I had no experience in the food world. So we opened this restaurant, and I had no idea how hard restaurants are. Every restaurant really is a small miracle, the fact that they're open and operating. Or, or it's a tiny hell. Or both. <laughs> but what I 
came to realize very quickly was how hard it was. I mean, honestly, a lot of tears, insanely long hours. But I looked around and I realized I had no peers. I had no friends in the industry, mentors, mentees, minions, any of it, you name it. And I really was craving community. But also I did look around and and really feel that women just weren't getting the attention that they deserved in the food world, even with all the people you mentioned. Um, Things have really changed in the past few years. I think there was something sort of simmering under the surface, and a lot of women in this industry felt that they just weren't getting the recognition that they deserved or others deserved. So why do you think women in food is a particularly good topic for a magazine? It's a, it's a very important topic, but how do you turn that into a magazine? There is such a wealth of material and so many wonderful stories to be told that it, it made sense to us. You know, and I, I think that's what sometimes makes a great business or a great idea for a business is if you believe in it, you can make it happen. And we did believe in it. And fortunately, we've found enough people to drag along in the process. What's happened with Cherry Bomb is is it's become more than just a, a media outlet. It's kind of become a community. And we now have a conference, our Jubilee Conference, which takes place every year with a few hundred women. We have our podcast, Radio Cherry Bomb. And it really feels like a community now. I love your answer. It's the same answer I gave people all the time. They ask, you know, why? And you say, because I wanted to. Um, Ducca, duca donuts, the, the spice mix mm-hmm. uh, with nuts and, and cumin, other things from the Middle East. Is this mashup of culinary mashup, which has obviously been going on for some time, uh, is that here to stay? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, the recipe you're talking about is from Molly Ye, who has that fantastic blog, um, My Name is Ye. I love fusion cuisine. I mean, I, I know chefs don't like that word fusion, but I find it fascinating. And, you know, there aren't that many cuisines left to discover. So if we're not doing fusion cuisine, what's moving us forward? You know what's <laughs> exciting to me is that most of the world didn't have a lot of fuel. So they had to find a way to create flavor quickly. So the ingredients have big flavors. The combinations of ingredients are more interesting. The cooking itself is less important than what goes in at the beginning. And so if you're thinking about how to get dinner on the table quickly here in America, uh, all those lessons are well learned because it gives you what you want. You want big flavor fast. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a spice mix, for example, gives you big flavor fast. Um, But don't you think that's what what the whole fusion aspect and these mashups is – is one of the things that keeps things fun and interesting. And and that's really what blows my mind, I guess, about all creative endeavors, whether it's music or art or food. You basically have the same elements and you're just or the same notes or the same colors and you're putting to them together in different ways and coming up with things that blow people's minds. You've used my favorite analogy, which is music. Yeah, music and food. And my favorite comment is it's the notes you don't play that make the song. The possibilities are so much greater than what I grew up with and probably what you grew up with, right? Because mm-hmm. it was a pretty much one-note cooking. Um, what do you think of Martha Stewart? Oh, I love Martha Stewart. Why? I, I feel like I owe a big debt to Martha Stewart, as do a lot of uh, people in this industry. I think she elevated domestic arts in a way that made them interesting and special and and worthwhile at a time when they just weren't appreciated. 
Yeah, I love Martha Stewart too. I think back when she bought her magazine out from under Time Inc., they had no idea what to do with it. And she turned into this vast omnimedia empire, and she really created omnimedia, really. So from a business point of view, she beat the she beat the top guys and created a whole new way of thinking about media and publishing. And, and no one had really done that as well as she ever did. And, you know, that's that's quite something. Yeah, Martha created – She a lot of people say she created the lifestyle category, and she kind of did. I mean, you have to ask how many of these things would even exist right. had Martha not paved the way. I, maybe Cherry Bomb wouldn't exist if Martha hadn't paved the way. Um, fashion and food. Uh, lots of bloggers, fashion bloggers – include food on their blogs. Uh, why fashion and food? I think it's because everybody everybody wants to express their creativity today. And I don't know whether it's social media has woken up people to the idea of just what how are you creative as an individual. Hmm. And food is one of those things where you can express your creativity. You have to eat. If you're, you know, fortunate, you get to eat a few times a day. And it's a really wonderful way to showcase your creativity. That's, that's a good point. And for the most part, everybody can cook or learn how to cook, thanks to people like you and people like Martha and Rachel Ray, et cetera. There are more ways to learn how to cook. Not everybody can make a handbag. Not everybody can make a dress. But for the most part, everybody can cook. I think it's the last thing you can still do with your hands where, you know, you can't fix your car anymore, you can't do the plumbing. You can do it with your hands, and you get immediate gratification. It involves other people. So you can cook for other people, mm -hmm. which is terrific. Uh, but also yourself. I, I mean, you're yourself. taking care of yourself. Yeah. And, and then also, you talk to people in other cultures, Vietnam, Japan, other places, and there's a whole gestalt around cooking. It's not just the cooking. It's how you move in the kitchen. It's, it's, it's cooking with right intent. Cooking isn't just the thing. It's the mindset of cooking, which is really interesting. Um, so what makes a good story? You have lots of interviews. Cherry Bomb's full of interviews. You interview people all the time. You've been doing this a long time. Uh, it's hard to do. What's a good story? Um, you know, look at someone like Alice Waters. Alice has been written about 8 million times. What could you possibly talk about that's new with Alice Waters? So when we interviewed Alice, I always loved the song and the book, Go Ask Alice. And I thought, let's get everybody to ask Alice a question. So we sort of ask all these different women in our community, if you could ask Alice Waters anything, what would you ask her? So that's what we turn the story into. And sometimes it's just telling someone's straight-up story, and sometimes it's having to find that twist for someone who's been interviewed 8,000 times, and how do you keep it fresh? And I learned a lot from that Alice Waters story. My favorite question was still, what do you eat in airports and on planes? And Alice brings her own food. She brings her own cutlery. She brings her own napkin. She sometimes brings a little bit extra to share with people. But it really woke me up because, I don't know, I think I've been so scared by the whole airport process, it didn't really cross my mind. Oh, I can show up with my own food and a pair of chopsticks and get through security. So now I make my own food all the time. Um, okay, we're going to turn this around. You get to ask me three questions. Oh, boy. Uh, what advice do you have for crazy people who want to launch magazines these days? The first thing I think of is, oh, Lord, please don't, because you just don't know what you're going to get yourself in for. But if, if you really have a commitment and a passion for something and you're willing to do eight different jobs and work 20 hours a day, absolutely do it. What's your favorite band? 
Grateful Dead. I'm Fun. A, I'm a deadhead hey. since the 1960s. Didn't have to think about that. This one I always asked on the radio show just because it made me crack up. If you had to be trapped on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be? Uh, it would have been Julia because she she understood conversation. It would have to be somebody who was terrific at conversation because that's about all you're going to be doing on a desert island. The answer to that question was always very revealing because you found out what people valued because some people would ask if you had to procreate. Other people would talk about conversation. Other people would talk about survival skills. What kind of food would we eat? So you learn a lot about people from that answer. Of all the women you've interviewed or had in your magazine, how many of them are really Julia descendants that have really come from that part of the food world? The first answer that comes to mind is all of us. I feel like without Julia, you know, where would where would the whole food world be right now? And And so many of us are descendants of what Julia actually did and started and built. I mean, we've had your fabulous Sarah Moulton on our radio show uh, a few times. She's so funny and so delightful. Joan Nathan has some funny stories about being edited by Judith Jones, and you didn't want to be on the receiving end of the uh, marks on the manuscript with her. There's a wonderful photographer named Andrea Gentle. She worked with Julia when she was in her early 20s and said that she wished she could go back and tell her 23-year-old self, like, you are so lucky to be working with this woman. You really need to stop and just absolutely soak in everything that you can of this experience. Then there's also everybody's favorite, Dory Greenspan. And then Barbara Lynch. Barbara, in the new issue, we have um, we excerpted a bit from Barbara's new memoir where she talks about crank calling Julia Child on the phone from a payphone in Boston and hanging up on her. I love Barbara Lynch. Um, so where do we go from here? We've merged, you know, fashion, politics, sex, art, food. Everything's coming together. There's a mashup of ideas from around the world. Every trend has a counter trend. What's the counter trend of what you're doing? For me, I've really fallen in love with these events that we do. And I think media is a great way to tell people stories. But if you really want to bring people together today, it's great to bring them together in person. And I think everybody is sort of craving that connection these days. And that is part of why food is so exciting. You know, like to be able to make food for someone else, to nourish someone else is really so wonderful. I think that's completely at the root of of this food obsession today. Why do people go stand online for silly things? Maybe they like to stand online because they're surrounded by other people and they're part of this communal experience. And that's when all of this becomes really meaningful. Carrie Diamond, a pleasure. Thank you so much. This was an honor. Thank Thanks. you. That was Carrie Diamond, co-creator and editorial director of Cherry Bomb. You know, radio's been broadcast since 1920, and right now you are listening to radio. The first magazine was published in 1741, and today many of you are still getting a magazine delivered by snail mail in your mailbox. Radio and magazines tell stories, and so does food. I bet that more stories have been told over a meal than at any other time or place. You know, some things just never get old. Right now, Milk Street is headed to the streets of Tel Aviv in search of the perfect hummus recipe. All over Israel, you can find various types of, you know, a lot of kinds of hummus. 
people would say that every hummus they grew up on is the best hummus because you know they are used to the flavor. So uh, each one has his own, you know, secrets. But hummus is not hard to make. That's Alad Shore, owner of Shlomo and Duran Hummus Shop in Tel Aviv, speaking with Milk Street's editorial director J.M. Hirsch about the secrets of his success. We add a lot of tahini which is the uh, expensive ingredient in the hummus, which gives it uh, its unique texture. Do you have a certain tahini that you only use that tahini? If so, why? Yeah, we have a unique uh, tahini supplier that makes the tahini especially for us. Uh, if, I tell, if I'm going to tell you, I need to kill you. <laughs> I have JM here in the studio today to talk about what he learned on his trip to Tel Aviv and how we came up with this particular hummus recipe here at Milk Street. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. I think you were headed from the airport in a taxi, and someone asked you, where are you getting your hummus for breakfast? Right? For breakfast. That, oh. was the, that was the moment I realized that hummus is just treated so differently in Israel. It never occurred to me that hummus was a breakfast food. Uh, but people line up at 7 o'clock in the morning. They are lined up. A lot of them are on their way to work. And you see people getting their bowls of hummus and sitting down and eating it like soup. I mean, that just blew my mind. And when I finally get my own, I realize it's warm. So it's warm hummus that they're eating with a spoon, and they're dunking raw onions into it, and it is so creamy and smooth. It's, it's like yogurt smooth. And this was nothing like what you would buy in an American grocery store, and certainly no, not a party dip that we would serve with baby carrots. I was really blown away by how much I didn't understand about hummus. And, and that then became the mission of this entire trip, was to figure out how these people get their hummus so smooth, so creamy, and, and just so wonderfully flavorful. It, it, was, it was just amazing. Well, you told me, you didn't happen to mention it just now, but when you went to order yours, you wanted it with pita bread. Oh, I totally messed and, it up, and, and yes. you Ended up with a bag of <laughs> yes. hummus and pita, right? Running down my arm, in <laughs> fact, yeah. You know, I, I saw everybody eating these beautiful bowls of hummus topped with paprika and cumin and olive oil and whole chickpeas, and it looked beautiful, and they had big stacks of fresh pita bread that, that just looked pillowy soft, and that's what I wanted. So being an ignorant American, I walk up to the window and I say, <laughs> you know, can I please have a hummus and pita? Well, turns out that the pita is just implied. You don't have to ask for it. And so by asking for it, I, I, I guess I must have said, you know, I want a sandwich of some sort because what they did was they gave me a weird look. Then they took a pita and they shoved a ton of this warm, oozing hummus mm. into the pita bread, shoved it in a bag and handed it to me. And, you know, there's a reason people don't eat it this way because, it was, you know, like I say, it was dripping down my arms. But I stood on the side of the road and I ate this and it was just an amazing hummus experience. I know I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of weight on that, but it was just outstandingly good. So how did they do it? All right. So I spent the next few days visiting one hummus shop after another and, and talking to the, the cooks. And we learned a few things about how they make it and how they make it differently than we do. And the first thing is size does matter. So the Israeli chickpeas are smaller than what we consider a kind of a normal chickpea. And, and we looked around here as well to see could we, could we actually get these. And we can, in fact. So they prefer a very small chickpea that purees much more smoothly than the larger chickpeas. And we tested this out at Milk Street, and we agreed. That they, they, clearly, there's something different here. But, but it still works with the regular size Oh, yeah, it works yeah. with the regular. It's just not going to be as creamy. And it was still very good, though, when we made it with larger chickpeas. 
And obviously, they're cooking their chickpeas fresh from dried chickpeas, which is something I'll admit that I, I really detested doing before. I, you know, to me, chickpeas come from a can. But I will say when we tested it, it made a tremendous difference. And the Israelis, once again, knew what they're doing. But what really threw me is that they then puree them while they're warm. And that really surprised me. And we tested that out as well. And we found that, yeah, it really does make a difference to make your hummus while it's warm using for the liquid the water that they were cooked in. There's a lot of starch in that water. And that contributes to the, to the consistency of your finished hummus. Then we learned that the flavorings are different. You know, here you see like super powerful garlic hummus, you know, and all these crazy additions. Hummus in Israel is a very simple matter, very little added to it. A little bit of lemon juice, some paprika, some cumin on top, not a whole lot else. And tahini? Tahini, yes. Well, that's the, that's the key ingredient. And that's what gives its consistency. So tahini, the sesame seed butter is added in tremendous volumes. And, you know, we think of it as more of a, of a subtle flavoring that's added to hummus, if at all. And in Israel, it is probably a one to three ratio hmm. of chickpeas and, and tahini. So it's three parts chickpeas, one yes. part tahini. Yes. Okay. And, and it was just an outrageous ratio. But the flavor, you, you get this really pronounced richness from the tahini in your finished hummus. And it, of course, contributes again to that kind of really butter smooth consistency. Go back to the whipping. As you told me, it wasn't 30 seconds. They're actually doing it for a few minutes. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, I was watching this guy make it in, in a shop and he, he put everything together in the food processor and let it go. And he walked away and I was watching him and I was like, well, aren't you going to turn that off? And, <laughs> and he just kept walking around the shop. And finally, I, I started looking at my watch and he let it go for a good three to four minutes. And I, again, I've never processed anything for that long. I was, I was shocked by how long. And that, I learned, is standard. They, they process it for a very long time. Then they add the tahini and process it again for hmm. a very long time. And again, that's where you're getting kind of another level of uh, contributing to this kind of very butter smooth consistency. Now, the last thing is you brought back ideas for toppings. Mm -hmm. I, I knew about the olive oil and, and the chickpeas and the paprika. But they also have like a meat uh, yeah. topping. Yeah, well, there's all sorts of ways to top it. And, you know, I think that's one of the ways that the shops in, in Tel Aviv in particular kind of distinguish themselves from the others in what they put on it. Full is one topping. It's kind of made from uh, fava bean puree. Then some places put shakshuka on it, which is kind of eggs cooked in a tomato base. And then you'll see roasted eggplant on them. Uh, hard-boiled eggs, sliced hard-boiled eggs are also common. And then there's the meat topping, which I thought was one of the best ones. You know, it's, it's usually it's browned ground meat, usually lamb or beef, and very well-seasoned cinnamon, cumin, paprika in it. And then they spoon that over the warm hummus. Mm. And then you get that warm plate of those pillow-soft pita breads. And it's, it is amazing. Jam, it's hummus for breakfast. All the time. <laughs> Not a little dipping sauce for those little baby vegetables. Yes. <laughs> Jam, thank you. Thank you. You can find our recipe for Israeli hummus, my story, and all our photos at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your pressing culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. 
and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're going to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, it's Tony. Hi, Tony. Where are you calling from? Miami Beach, Florida. Nice. So how can we help you? Uh, We have a lot of South American, you know, Argentinian and Uruguayan butcher shops. And my wife and I recently went to a Uruguayan butcher shop, and we found something called rose meat. And I never heard of it, and so I decided to get it. I asked the owner of the shop, how do I cook this? And he told me, well, you know, in Uruguay, we raise it in milk and, you know, didn't give me great directions, but I sort of followed them and it turned out great. It was really good, but it's an interesting item I would like to use more often. And I was wondering if there were maybe some more traditional American recipes that used it or if I always had to braise it. What does it look like? Is it very lean? It kind of looks like a big piece of flank steak, but you know, it comes from a full-grown cow, but it has the 
taste and look of veal. Does it have another name? In Mexico, they call it suadero. Ah, okay. What? You know what that means? Yeah, that I've seen, but rose meat I've never well, what seen. Is that? It's a cut of beef that lies between the lower flank and sirloin primal sections of the cow. So it's sort of right on top of the udder. So it's the bottom sirloin. Yes. Which and is, by the way, about where the steak tips come from. Well, good for you. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, which are yummy things. But yeah. I do know that it's very lean but chewy. So you have to braise it. I don't think you have to braise it in milk, but you have to braise okay. it in something. I mean, you could use, you know, a tomato-based sauce or... We actually did, I think we did steak tips or something recently. And we found that, first of all, uh, if you marinate it with like soy sauce, which has a lot of uh-huh. salt in it, that'll help a lot. Because it will make it naturally Yeah, juicy. and there was one cut, I think, that actually you cook it to medium, not medium rare. It was actually more tender when it was cooked to medium. So I remember that. But it's the marinade with a lot of salt, or you could salt it overnight and let it sit in the fridge uncovered. If it's going to be chewy, I think that would actually really help. Well, any cut that's chewy, like some of those chuck shoulder steaks that you really can eat as a steak, all you have to do is slice them really thin. So it might be the case with this too. But I've never cooked it myself, so I can't tell you. I just know that usually it's braised. But I think you could braise it in anything. Well, it really depends. Does it have a lot of connective tissue when you look at the meat? Or is it more like a round or something, which is just all one color? It seemed a lot more like a flat meat or a flank steak to me. It had a grain yeah. of it. Okay. Yeah. Well, then, then you want it thin and you want to cook it fast. Yeah. You could maybe cook it, not braise it, and slice it really thin. But before I you know, bet my life on it here, I'd like to go get some. Guys, another question. When you buy it, is it sold like a flank steak? How thick is it and what does it look like? It was sold as a whole roast. Like a three-pound roast? Yeah. Yeah, if it's got a grain in it, which you said it does, my guess is it's like a flank or some, or even steak tip. I would slice it fairly thinly. I might marinate it quickly and then cook it very quickly. Just don't let it sit too long on the grill or whatever you're doing. I would try that. And, and Sarah's looking, going like... I think braise. Uh, braise, braise, braise. <laughs> but, you know, again, I need to get my hands on some. The French don't cook anything quickly, that's why. Well, try that thin, a quick marinade with like soy sauce, et cetera, and then cook it quickly and see what happens. And then you can try braising it and... And call us back and let us know who wins. No, don't call us back if, if phrasing wins. Just, yeah. please, please don't return the call. Thank you so much. It was a You're great welcome. to be on with you both. Okay. okay, thank you. Thanks. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, just give us a ring. That number is 1-855-4-BOWTIE or 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Um, this is Annie Humphrey from Cleveland, Ohio. How can we help you? Well, so I had a question about sourdough bread. I spent weeks making a starter, and now I feed it every week, and it seems that all I can make with it is sourdough bread, which is great. But I would love to be able to use that starter to do something a little bit different. I know that they use uh, Levan to make you know, some different kinds of bread. You know, maybe add a little whole wheat, a little grain, something like that. But I can't quite figure out how to do it. Well, yeasted waffles are high on my list. I bet you could oh. use the starter for that, and that would be terrific. Oh, that sounds great. You have to think ahead, oh, of course, sounds... but it's uh, that's one of the best things nobody makes is yeasted waffles. Oh, yeah, no, that sounds great. This yeah. is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but what do you think about pizza dough or focaccia? Yeah, no, I would love to try something like that, too. I didn't even think about pizza dough. So you guys have all sorts of great ideas. There's also, um, you know, websites you can go to that sort of specialize in this. There's one called wildyeastblog.com. 
Oh. You might want to check that one out since you've sort of, you know, gone wild yourself with this. <laughs> I remember there was some cookbook, a baking book, that had like 30 pages about how to make dough from scratch, starting with the yeast, where you put the mix it. Did you do this, where you sort of let the natural bacteria come and ter- ferment it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I fed it every day for a couple of weeks, and uh, now I you know, feed it once a week to keep it happy. It's, um, it's exciting, um, uh, but yes, yeah. you're right. You want to find other things to do with. Remember Beard on Bread? James Beard's book, Beard oh, yes, on Bread. Yes, yes. That actually was a good book. Yeah. yeah that came out obviously that might a long time ago. Still be in your library. Seventies. Yeah. You can always check King Arthur Flowers website too, sure. because they're great. And they'll talk to you and they're all so warm and friendly. And then uh, Not oh, By good. Bread Alone was remember that book came out twenty years ago? Dan Leader. Dan Leader. That was a good book too. Yeah. yeah. Oh great. Sounds like my library is gonna expand. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm impressed that you made your own starter. You go. Well, you know, it's fun. It's you know, one of those little pet projects, you know, something fun to do. Keep me out of trouble. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, give it a shot, but definitely try the waffles. Yeah, that would be... Yes. Oh, yeah. well, waffles, that sounds awesome. You'll be very popular. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Annie. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. You too. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week on Milk Street, it's my five top, believe it or not, cooking tips. The first is low heat. We always talk about high heat in a skillet. There are many times when you want to use low to medium, cooking onions, for example. Vegetables in general seem to benefit from longer, slower cooking. You develop flavor and you don't overcook. Number two, if the cooking is going too fast in a skillet, there's an easy way to solve that problem just by adding a little bit of water. That will quickly solve the problem of burning the food in the pan. Number three, if you actually do burn some meat, let's say in a skillet, you actually have to clean the pan. If you don't, the rest of that meat's gonna get pretty nasty and the sauce will pick up the burn flavor. Number four, use a vegetable cleaver, a Chinese vegetable cleaver instead of a chef's knife. It has a much wider blade, it's easier to use and it's actually safer. Number five, instead of mincing garlic, very often I take a whole head, cut off the top quarter or so and just throw it in a soup or a stew for an hour, hour and a half. You take it out and you can press the nice buttery soft garlic back into the super stew. It adds a lot of flavor, but none of that harsh garlic bite. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're headed over to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to chat with wine expert Stephen Muse about the French crew system and whether it's truly helpful in choosing a good wine. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. How many times when you've been in a restaurant or in a wine shop have you heard the term crew thrown around? Isn't grand crew, as premier in, crew, as this kind of thing? Really crude? No, oh, crew. C-R-U. C-R-U. I've crew. heard of it, and I have no idea, other than it's supposed to mean it's more expensive, what it actually means. <laughs> yeah. Well, today we're going to talk about this term, explain what it means, where it's important, where it's not so important, and we're going to ask the question, is the crew system something that really does guarantee a higher quality of wine or not? Let's go okay. right to it. You're going to begin with a beautiful champagne there. Mm. Delicious, huh? Very nice. Yeah, this is the Benoit Lahaye Brut Essentiel. So I want you to look carefully at the label and see what you see there. Grand Cru. G-R-A-N-D-C-R-U. So let's sort of begin by explaining that crew designation is supposed to be something that indicates that the wine is 
by its nature, head and shoulders above the common run of wine. Typically, we think of a wine achieving this kind of status because it has a long track record of excellence. So this is different from the point system, you know, 95 mm -hmm. points, 89 points, that are given by wine critics. The cruise system, we're talking about rewarding wines and estates that have a long history of excellence, not just that they produced a terrific wine in one vintage. So it's not a designation you put on one wine. It's a designation that you put on a whole range of wines. And who is the lucky person or organization that denotes and or sells this designation? Well, it's going to be the Appalachian authorities for each area, right, that determine exactly who can use the word Grand Cru, Premier Cru. But the important thing to know about the way they do things in Champagne, the way they hand out the Grand Cru designation, is that there are certain townships in Champagne region that have this historic reputation for making higher quality wines. So the Grand Cru designation actually applies to the whole township. So in Champagne, Grand Cru is the top level. Yeah. Premier Cru is one step below. And pretty good crew kind of sucks. No, there's Motley Cru, but that's Motley something crew, else. Yeah. Okay, the second wine is what? So the second wine is, I think, a really superb little white burgundy. It's from Montagny, not a terribly high prestige area. In fact, it does not have any Grand Cru vineyards in it, but it does have Premier Cru vineyards. This is made by J.M. Boyot. It's a 2014 Montagny Premier Cru. Do you like it? I liked it a lot. It, it wasn't oaky and harsh and big like some white burgundies are. And the finish is almost creamy finish. It yeah. has a nice yeah. finish to it. It's very subtle. It's yeah, very it's good. A yeah. beautiful thing. So this is burgundy, as I've said. The Grand Cru and the Premier Cru designations don't attach to the townships but to the vineyards. The last wine, third wine, is a red wine, which is? Yes. This is the 1988 Cause d'Estournel. It's a classic Bordeaux, and down it goes. This is a grown-up wine. Yes, this is definitely grown-up, and believe me, it sells for grown-up money. So how does this fit in? We had Village with the first wine. We had Vineyard for the second wine. Right. Now what? Well, Bordeaux has a completely different approach. There are five levels of classification, and the designation attaches not to a township or to a vineyard, but to an estate. There are five in the top category, first growth, there are an increasing number in the second, third, fourth, and fifth classifications. And so the emphasis really there is on the quality of the vine growing and the winemaking at the property. So you go into wine shop because you know about wine. Yeah. Do you ever buy wine based at all on these designations? Grand Cru, Premier Cru, does it really mean anything in terms of buying wine? The answer is yes. You've got at least three places in the world where the cruise system is really embedded. Champagne, Burgundy, and Bordeaux. In all of these places, if you're a winemaker and you're an heir to a crew designation, you have every incentive to keep the quality of your product up on a par with that designation. So, yes, it's something that consumers should pay attention to. They're going to notice a difference in the price, typically, as they move up. But you have to remember that in some places, you're going to get to a crew level that you probably can't afford to drink in. Unless it's cold duck Grand Cru. <laughs> and then, then we get the best of both worlds. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Chris. 
That was wine expert Stephen Muse. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Earlier in the show, I spoke with J.M. Hirsch about his search for the perfect hummus recipe and made me wonder about authenticity. You know, after four days on the ground in Tel Aviv, it became clear that there are many variations on the basic theme. You can top hummus with boiled eggs, paprika, herbs, whole chickpeas, or spicy meat sauces. And you can scoop it out of the bowl with pita or onion or even a spoon. What is authentic is the underlying concept. That would be warm, whipped, and drizzled. So authenticity is really about the very soul of a recipe. As long as you're true to the essence of a dish, you can improvise all you like. That's it for this week. If you're just tuning in and missed the show, you can download Milk Street Radio as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, also on Spotify, but also at our brand new website, 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe. And by the way, photos and a longer story about our trip to Tel Aviv are up on our site as well. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.